0: I don't know what most white people in this country feel, but I can only include what they feel from the state of their institutions. Now, this is the evidence, you want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen.
1: You're listening to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts, Katina and Garen. In celebration of Black History Month, we are releasing new episodes every Wednesday in February, so be on the lookout for twice the content this month. Today's topic is James Baldwin. We walk through James's life and story, talk of stories that shaped his character, and then we end the conversation discussing the relationship that Christianity has caused on non-believers. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Okay, before we start, I want to, as always, kind of give you a little update on what I think or like what I've been taught of James Baldwin. Mm. All that I know is that he was a poet, so he wrote poetry, he wrote speeches, he wrote kind of monologue stuff, just general kind of critiques of segregation, racial stuff. He was obviously very anti that, and so there was a like he lived overseas at some point, and I know that he was on some TV shows back in the day, but honestly outside of that, I don't know what. But again, that's just kind of that's probably what most of our listeners they probably don't even know who he is. He's the intro of our podcast, so you definitely have heard his voice before if you've listened to the show. So with that being said, catch us up what's happening, what's going on in and around the time that he comes into the world. So James
2: Baldwin was born in 1924, so think back to all that was going on at that time that was back when white supremacists actually publicly got elected to statewide offices by saying white supremacy is the way that America should be. So I mean, that's, that was overt racism. Lynching the world was just real chaotic at that point with, I mean, the Great Depression. And James Baldwin was born in Harlem, His mother, Emma Burtis Jones, actually left his biological father early on because of drug use and moved to Harlem. Mm -hmm. And then she remarried. She got married to David Baldwin and had eight other children with him. So James Baldwin was an older brother to eight siblings. And that was actually a big part of his upbringing in his life was being kind of responsible and caring for and loving his siblings, he kinda he, he credited them and his relationship with them as kind of keeping him on the, the right track. So he was an older brother, he was empathetic and I think grew in empathy through that. But other than that, most of his childhood was actually like fairly difficult childhood. His father was abusive in some ways, was really critical of him. He called him ugly. He and it was his stepfather, so his his stepfather favored his own biological children over James or Jimmy. I'll call him Jimmy some because yeah. that's what also, he goes by Jimmy a lot. Okay. So there was just like a lot of hard stuff there. And he found solace in books and in the library. He actually reminds me in that a little bit of Hamilton. How you know he uh, read every book that he could find because yeah. it was a little bit of an escape from early childhood pain. And in that pain, you can either you just kind of go off the rails, or you can find solace in something good and better. And, and that's kind of what, fortunately, providentially, Jimmy found solace in books and in learning and in reading, writing, and he just was really brilliant. And found encouragement in that and and had some teachers that were like helped to mentor him and bring that out. There was actually an episode early on where there was a white teacher who really just kind of mentored him, but it was, it's kind of a funny dynamic because his father and mother were just really scared that this white woman bringing, just kind of having investment into James's life was going to cause racist people to target Jimmy. Yeah. There's yeah. just like this scary dynamic there. So James's stepfather was a pastor, he was a minister, and James actually pursued he when he was 14 years old, he was at revival movement, Pentecostal Revival Movement, and he actually had like a religious experience and he actually Pursued ministry from 14 to 17, he really dove into it. And he actually was a gifted preacher and had started having more people even come to his little meetings or revival meetings than his stepfather. And you can actually see the influence of that throughout Jimmy's life. He did not, after he was 17, he kind of stepped back from Christianity. He started to see hypocrisy in Christianity which is not really surprising knowing like how racist so much of Christianity was in his day. You can't really fault him for it, but he stepped back from Christianity, but he continued to be heavily influenced by it. And he, all throughout his writings, he has lots of Christian or biblical allusions and ways of speaking about things. He makes Mm -hmm. a lot of references to biblical kind of foundational ideas. So you can see it, it definitely had an influence on him. But also you can see how just because of the hypocrisy of Christianity of his day, he walked away from it. Which is, I mean, from my perspective, that's just a sad reality that Christianity was a witness against the goodness of Jesus in that day. What a like
1: backwards thing. And I mean, we've seen that pattern with multiple people that we've talked about have had that. Similar experiences.
2: Mm-hmm. Malcolm X. And it, it goes, exactly.
1: I think same. it goes back to I mean, we've addressed teachers and the importance of not overlooking students in their classrooms, and that there are all different types of students in your classroom, and that how important of a job that is, and mm-hmm. how much encouragement you can be, how much life you can speak into kids that you may think aren't listening, don't want to listen, but. They are. I mean, I think it's been proven over and over. I mean, the kids are listening to adults, mm-hmm. whether, you know, whatever you're saying, good mm-hmm. or bad. And I mean, obviously we, we want to point people towards good. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's just another highlight of the importance of James Baldwin and his works and even the past people that we've talked about and I'm sure the future people that we'll talk about on the show, how important their childhood and even their views and interactions with Christianity specifically yeah. have really changed the course for some of these people.
2: Mm-hmm. Something you said there actually strikes really close to something James Baldwin said. So I was bringing that out as that he said at one point, point, I don't have the quote in front of me, but uh, so it's not going to be word for word, but that children listen to teachers, but most especially they, they're really good at imitating them. Yeah you for for the teachers who are listening or everyone teaches in some capacity that your life is itself oftentimes the most important lesson because sometimes people will listen to your words but they will oftentimes imitate you or or listen to your life in a in a way that's even deeper yeah at 10 years old james baldwin was just he was tased and abused by two new york city police officers so you see just the injustice of racism in America was also part of his formation. And again, during his later teen years, he also was not doing anything wrong in either case. He just was targeted by police officers who were unjust and racist. So and he confronted racism and other various forms to the point that he just was angry at the way that America was. And he was a almost to the point where he was like afraid that if he stayed in America he was going to hurt somebody or just become depressed and so he actually at i think 24 years old moved to paris yes which is kind of says something about a person that they're willing to like follow through with what they feel and think in such a dramatic way as to move to another country that speaks a different language I think that just tells you a lot about that somebody that there's a substance to who someone is if they're not just going with the flow. And he saw like I cannot be who I'm meant to be if I stay in this oppressive system, so I'm going to like radically uproot my life and go where I can become who I'm supposed to be. I think that yeah, really no, cool. I that's I totally
1: agree with that. What what would you say to people that are I mean, I'm obviously not in any situation like James Baldwin was, but there are times when I'm Really angry at our criminal justice system, at just kind of race and politics and stuff. That just is sometimes I don't know what to do, and I just get so angry at that some people can believe a certain thing, or or when something happens, it's just it's maddening. And most of our listeners, I would say, I'm, I would think that a lot of people probably feel that way, especially our listeners. They probably empathize, and they they're sad when sad things happen. They're mad when things that make the mad happen, but like most of us aren't going to pick up and move to another country. So what do you say to the person that you got to do something with that? You can't just push it down and then it's just going to go away. Like what would you say to somebody who's mad and is really angry at the way that our country is? Well, Where do you said, go?
0: He said to be a Negro in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be in rage almost all the time. <laughs> wow. Wow. I mean, his quotes are oh, man. prolific. Like, the things that he said through his writings and his speeches, they just cut like a knife.
1: Mm. Yeah, so what do you do? I mean, what do you,
2: what do, you do with the anger? What do you do with, your, with that enragement? Yeah, so I guess a couple of thoughts would be, one is just be willing to like, especially for black listeners, I would just encourage you to just feel the freedom to not have to absorb more than you can handle and to rest and to not have to like feel like you need to read every headline sometimes it might be the case that you you just need to have the freedom to like not push back against every injustice out there because it's, it's too much there's too much injustice humans aren't designed to be able to carry the weight of all of it and it's enough to do your part you don't need to like In your thoughts and conscience, carry the weight of stuff you can't control. So, I think sometimes there's a little bit of stepping back that's appropriate. The James Baldwin quote shows, though, you should be angry because if you're not angry, that's maybe that shows that you're not nearly engaged enough in reality because there's injustice everywhere. And if you're not angry, then you either aren't loving or you're not aware. And both of those are problematic. So you ought to be angry, but you ought to also be willing to 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 kind of ask yourself, what am I? What are my actual avenues of addressing injustice? And let me like invest in those areas and kind of focus there, and not have to carry the weight of things I can't control more than I need to. And you have to be aware of a good bit because there are a lot of things that you control, so you can't just tune out. But also, I mean, I, for me, I just recently. In my morning routine, change my morning routine because I would get on the news and just kind of see what the daily headlines are, and it would just upset me. And then I would like try to read my Bible, and I'm just still just thinking. My brain's just thinking about injustice and these frustrating things. And I had to rearrange what <laughs> what order I do my reading in to get the headspace that I needed to have rest. And so, for some of our listeners, maybe that's something you need to do: just like rearrange your schedule, rearrange your routine. But there's not really an easy, super easy answer because there
0: are lots of infuriating things <laughs> that yeah. happen in our world. Yeah. There's not. And it's, you know, James Baldwin was a part of the Harlem Renaissance. And during that period, even after a lot of black creatives moved to Paris or moved to other countries, it was, you know, almost like they were fleeing this country from persecution. Mm -hmm. from this country. And so it was very normal for black people who would amass a certain level of wealth or prestige or I would use the word loosely privileged. They would leave. They would leave, get out. You know, Josephine Baker was, um, lived, you know, not too far from him. And Paul Robeson, I think, left the country. So many artists and creatives left America out of disgust. Mm-hmm. for the hatred, the racism, the oppression.
2: Yeah, so he he moved to Paris. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he said that from Paris,
2: like he was able to understand uh, the United States more fully. He went there as something like a, a refugee. He just kind of like found solace in being kind of on the outside and not being in the racist system and just being able to like stand on the outside and look in. And he kind of constantly traveled back to America. So it's not that he was just living as a hermit. He was going all over the world and he was doing, you know, media interviews and press events and writing books. He wrote dozens of books. So he was very engaged, but he found a place that was safe and quiet where he could not have to constantly live in the reality of the oppressiveness of what our system was in America and I think that was helpful for him and it, it he says it helped him to see America more clearly sometimes I guess if you're in the forest you only you, you see the trees but you know you kind of stepped back from the forest and could see it more clearly yeah so let's talk a little bit just about his ideology I think that it's important to understand some of his story because that's part of who he is but also like because he's such a thinker we really want to dig into some of his ideology and some of the quotes and things he said to really appreciate his contribution. So he talked extensively about this concept of the lie that white people and white culture in America was believing and repackaging and selling. So the lie, there was kind of like two parts to it. He talked about the lie as, first of all, just this idea that black people were inferior, so white supremacy, And it included stereotyping black people as lazy, unintelligent, or sexually promiscuous. And then a second component of the lie is just this distortion of American history, just the bleaching of American history, the way that we retell racism and slavery as being just these not-so-bad things that happened and were fixed a long time ago and don't acknowledge the how horrific everything in the past was, and how much of a through line there has been to the way that things are today. And so he confronted both of those. But he talked he talked a lot about this idea of the lie, and those are the ideas that he that were kind of packaged inside that. And really, the way we've kind of talked about the same concept, but the the way that the language that I've used in the past is just how white people have to self justify and justify the way that we have benefited from racism and from white supremacy, we don't want to give up all that benefit. And if if you have a whole bunch of money and a whole bunch of land and education and all these things that are stemming from injustice of the past, then you're kind of at a crossroads where you either have to acknowledge where that really came from but then there's kind of, it's incumbent on you to do something about the inequality and injustice, or you have to make up some kind of alternate backstory. And maybe that includes just saying like, well, black people didn't have the same things because they were lazy or unintelligent or less capable. And that's the route that white people throughout American history have chosen, is different forms of the lie. And the exact wordage, the verbiage of the lie, the exact accusations that white people have made against black people, the exact stereotypes, the exact retelling of history has shifted through time, but it's all been the same pattern of justifying the inequality that exists and protecting it so that we don't have to address it and give up our advantages.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm hoping that our listeners are by now connecting. I mean, what is that, less than 100 years ago? That's like...
2: Mm-hmm. 90, yeah. 80. I mean, this is like years. civil rights movement. So it's
1: like the, those are the, I mean, those, yeah, those, what you just said could have come out today and it would be normal. A lot of the same issues these p- people have been talking about for a long time. It's like the whole idea of even when we talked about Fannie Lou Hamer a few episodes back, it was, you know, she's sick and tired of being sick and tired. And it's even the idea that we would brought up earlier of just playing the long game of you don't need to, you don't have to fight every single battle that some white person will come and you don't need to educate every single white person. It's not black and brown people's responsibility to do that. And that people like James Baldwin, people like Fannie Lou, Malcolm, all these people we've talked about have brought up these same issues, the same thing. And like at some point, I think you need to ask yourself why, are we talking about the same exact things almost 100 years later? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a great question to ask yourself. Like No Googling, just ask yourself why. I think it's Mm -hmm. a good kind of thing to wrestle in your mind with whatever side you fall into.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm going to read a a James Baldwin quote that kind of encapsulates some of these ideas. He says, there are days when you wonder what your role is in this country and what your future is in it how precisely you're going to reconcile yourself, your situation here, and how you're going to communicate to the vast, heedless, unthinking, cruel white majority that you're here. I'm terrified at the moral apathy, at the death of the heart. These people have deluded themselves for so long that they really don't think I'm human. And I base this on their conduct, not on what they say, which means that they have become, in themselves, moral monsters he talked a lot about that idea that white people through the lie and through white supremacy have become just a shadow of what they themselves could be or should be. That the racism doesn't just hurt black people, but it also degrades white people. And I think like as Christians, that's an easy concept to identify that white supremacy is sin and is a heinous sin and that that makes us less of who we should be. So, So he talked a lot about that.
1: And Katina's brought, you've brought this up several times of we white people tend to view black and brown people as, I don't think anybody would be like, oh, they're they're not human. I mean, maybe they're some... They did
2: longer like, ago, like yeah. during yeah. slavery. Christians actually, for a long time, wouldn't evangelize them because they didn't think they had souls.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I think you see less and less of that, or you see less and less of that, mm-hmm. who knows if it's actually being less. But if you ask the normal... Oh yeah, person they probably would say, "Oh yeah, they're human," but I think there is a mindset of other, different. And and maybe they wouldn't even say that that's a bad thing. Yeah. But I think reminding people of the, the it's crazy that you would even that we even need to bring this up. They are human. They are made in the image of God just as much as you are. I think just a step back from the noise. And see another human as another human is really difficult in our day because a lot of people don't interact a lot with humans. It's like we're just, you know, we're sending sentences to the internet so that other humans can read those sentences. But we're doing less and less of actual face-to-face human interaction. And I think we've probably seen just a overall less sympathetic, empathetic society in general. But yeah, I mean, I, I think just overall, it's a it's a good reminder to when, when you're thinking things of a group of people to step back and ask yourself, how do you, what are you really saying? What do you really think about these people? And not lie to yourself and give the, you know, the quote unquote right answer in your head, but like, what do you actually think? Mm-hmm. You know, I think we, we I try to bring this up all the time with all the disparities in our world, specifically in America with black and brown people. I think you have to go two ways. You either have to believe the lie of what James Baldwin was saying about you think you think black and brown people are lazy or just inherently not as smart that that's the reason there's disparities or you have to believe that there's a system that is purposefully creating disparities. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't see there's not another way to view it. And I think it's just another person that we're highlighting that brings up the same issues. You know, mm-hmm. hopefully yeah. our listeners can see that through line that you're talking about.
0: And how do you continue to disqualify a people group's experience, even with the handful of people that you surround yourself with that look like that people group that would say otherwise? Like, how do you how do you continue to disqualify? And and I. James Baldwin, I I read his works, just kind of fell in love with his writings and speeches and interviews when I was in high school. I love his works. And every time he opened his mouth, like, there would just be such—he just would cut. His words could just cut through all the noise. But he was often disqualified because he was a gay man and— even ostracized from the civil rights movement because, you know, he was a gay man. And oftentimes, I know that Christians, evangelicals, you know, they they would just disqualify him. Oh, well, he's gay, so he has nothing to offer. He has nothing to offer to the conversation. He has nothing. There's nothing that he can say that we, could, we would value because he's gay. And, you know, they just put people in boxes. And mm-hmm. so it's interesting that, you know, you have a black man who is a creative, who is artistically gifted and I would say even ac- academically gifted. And he has this very layered story growing up in Harlem, having contributed so much even from a very young age in middle school and in, in writing one of his school songs. He wrote songs for Ray Charles he was friends with Miles Davis. He was friends with Harry Belafonte. He was friends with, I think, Nina Simone. I mean, he has such an an interesting life. And it's so much more than, well, he was gay and we don't have to listen to him. And, I, and I'm speaking specifically to white listeners because, like I said, American Christianity specifically would, would just teach you to, oh, well, they do this. And so they're, they, they are therefore unworthy of being heard. And God, he speaks through many people. He speaks through people's stories. I, I was just talking about the other day how, you know, Moses' uh, Moses's, uh, father-in-law was Jethro, who was the high priest of Midian, Midian, and, you know, worship a completely different God and had completely different religious practices. But it was Jethro's household that spared that tended to Moses after he fled Egypt and he was exiled basically. He married Zipporah, Jethro's daughter, and it was Jethro that contributed to the 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 uh Hebrew children. Like he he contributed to God's people by advising Moses on how he should structure the different leaders and like have 50 people put people over the 50 and then people over the people who are over the 50 and gave Moses like amazingly sound advice when Moses needed it the most because he was extremely fatigued. And we just got to learn how to stop disqualifying people based on what we think is right because at the end of the day, or what we think is wrong because at the end of the day, James Baldwin was made in a likeness and image of God and he he's an image bearer and God gave him gifts and God gave him a voice and he gave him the things that the, the, the life, the experience, I mean, even the trauma, like the things that he dealt with that he was able to use to contribute his voice to society and to speak to the ills of this country and to speak out against racism and oppression and marginalization in such a way that was just so poignant that we are still speaking the name James Baldwin today. Like, just came out with the documentary I Am Not Your Negro just a few years ago. Like, this man, he cannot be denied. He cannot be denied just because of your personal opinion about his lifestyle.
1: That film... People need to watch that.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and read his books and essays. He is so, I mean, he was larger than life.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some people that, you know, and I'm, I am not one of them that can write words down that sound, even rhythmically sounding awesome, but then meaningful, yeah. like have a weight to them, where his writing is often louder than, you know, somebody
2: yelling. There was always the just
0: weight. -hmm. He brought that heat. He brought that, you know, that weight to everything he said. Yeah.
2: So that's actually a good transition. Let's read something he said that had that packed some heat. After Stokely Carmichael was arrested, and Baldwin came to a place where he believed that the Black Power movement was the only possible or at least reasonable response in the face of America's unwillingness to give up the lie. So for for a while, Baldwin was not really supporting the, the Black Power movement. He was kind of like, in between the black power movement and uh, MLK and the idea of more peaceful civil resistance. And he kind of moved a little bit more towards the militancy side of the spectrum towards the end of his life because he just saw how intractable the white resistance was to how how intractable the, the lie was. Here's a powerful quote. He said, I was there in the South And Stokely Carmichael was just a nonviolent student protester, marching and talking and getting his head whipped. This time now seems as far behind us as the flood. And if those suffering gallant, betrayed boys and girls, who were then using their bodies in an attempt to save a heedless nation, have since concluded that America is not a nation worth saving, no American alive has any right to be surprised. The young men in the black power movement were America's children, raised in the shadow of America's broken promises.
0: I mean, my drop. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, like you were saying, he was part of the Congress of Racial Equality, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Initially, you know, he had a very, like, nonviolent stance. Mm -hmm. But then he was also rejected by the leaders of the Civil Rights Movement. Mm -hmm. He was Hmm. excluded from the March on Washington to, as one of the speakers. Why? I mean, they would
2: call him Martin Luther Queen, just kind of like, Yeah. I think there's a lot of hmm. just homophobia or anti-homophobic ideology in the black power movement. And I mean, I think that that was the main reason in this.
0: You mean in, in, the, in the civil rights movement, the nonviolent?
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, within like the Black Panthers even.
0: Yeah, so he was kind of displaced from even within his own people because of homophobia. Mm -hmm. And Martin Luther King had done a speech or a talk where he said that homosexuality was a mental illness, just kind of ostracized Mm -hmm. James and just kind of excluded him, Mm -hmm. along with Bayard Rustin, because, you know, the only gay men at that time in the movement or outwardly gay men— were James Baldwin and um, Bayard Rustin and Rustin and Martin Luther King, you know, they were they actually were close, and Rustin contributed greatly, like to the March on Washington. But people, because they were bothered by his sexual orientation, then King, you know, spoke on it. They people get, began to ostracize uh, Rustin and and James.
2: Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, there's a lot of other aspects uh, to kind of touch on briefly. One is that the FBI extensively tracked, and there's like an FBI file on James Baldwin that has 1,884 pages, which again just shows you something about where the U.S. government was during this whole era. That here's James Baldwin isn't even like this militant figure. He's saying some things real unfiltered, like powerful statements. But it's not like he's advocating any kind of violence or anything. And the FBI is writing, I mean, that's like a library of books on on him. And yeah, following him. But then he also, he had some, there was like a meeting that he had with um, Robert Kennedy. And there was actually he met with him initially and then he met with him with some other civil rights leaders and they had a meeting talking about the civil rights movement and its demands and the meeting was kind of thought of as a spectacular failure at the time. Like Robert Kennedy got defensive. He was the attorney attorney general at the time and just was like defensive and not empathetic. He was, uh, I think, talking about how comparing like how he had felt like persecution because, uh, what were they, Irish Americans, the Kennedys? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So Robert was talking about how he had been persecuted as an Irish-American and he didn't really understand how that wasn't the same thing and was just kind of getting defensive. And some people even walked out of the meeting. So it's thought of as a failure at the time. But there's actually Robert Kennedy's attitude towards the civil rights movement kind of changed. There's kind of like a before and after point where he actually changed in his thinking after that time. And Robert then was a big part of convincing John F. Kennedy to pass the the Civil Rights Act. So that meeting actually was possibly like a a pretty key turning point, even though it was seen as a failure at the time. Yeah, Baldwin had a lot of hard, uh, he had a hard time with white liberals. Despite their commitment to racial justice, Baldwin Baldwin saw them as co-conspirators in maintaining the belief that white people matter more than others. He said white liberals, they weren't like avowed racists, but they were, he called them racial philanthropists, Ooh. who after a good deed returned to their suburban homes with white picket fences or to their apartments in segregated cities with their consciences content.
0: And that sounds, that that's so applicable today mm-hmm. because of white savior complex people, white people thinking that they're so woke and they're so engaged and they just go back to their lives having pat them, patted themselves on the back thinking that they've done such good deeds when they are oftentimes more dangerous and more complicit than they realize. some A dynamic that I think is maybe worth
2: mentioning is, and I think this is just instructive just in general. It's a good thing to know. You actually, if you have seen the light and know the way that is right and you continue to not walk in it, you're actually more morally guilty than somebody who's in ignorance. Mm-hmm it's at the the bible in in luke 12 jesus gave this like little example where he said it's like a little parable he said if if a servant knows his master's will and does something deserving punishment he'll be punished severely but if a servant doesn't know his master's will and does something deserving punishment he will be punished less severely and then he follows it up and says to him who much is given much is required what a just concise outlaying of this principle that if there are people who are in the audience and you have, you have seen and know that this story exists and that, that racism and systemic racism is a part of what has shaped America and brought us to where we are, it's not an option then for you to do nothing. There's like actually a, a new moral guilt that wasn't even there before when you were ignorant. There's like a new moral guilt if you see that and aren't changed and affected by it and aren't willing to push back against racism in a way that even costs you something. Uh, Well, I was just going to bring in, there's a, a James Baldwin quote that speaks to that really well. He says, once you realize that you can do something, it would be difficult to live with yourself if you didn't do it.
0: And there's also another quote from his novel, The Fire Next Time. Love takes off the mask that we fear we cannot live without. And no, we cannot live within. Mm -hmm. And another one, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. Mm -hmm. I think it would be good to just kind of go through some of his quotes and let him speak for himself.
2: Yeah, so let's kind of turn the time to just like reading a few more James Baldwin quotes and we can maybe process some of them together. I think with past people who we've spoken of, for some of them, like Fannie Lou Hamer is a good example, like her story is itself part of the power of who she was and how she shaped history. But with James Baldwin, he was a writer. So like it's his words in large part that have shaped the story and are his contribution in in a lot of ways. So let's just like take time to like read a few more of his quotes and process them. So here's one from No Name in the Streets. If one really wishes to know how justice is administered in a country, one does not question the policemen, the lawyers, the judges, or the protected members of the middle class. One goes to the unprotected, those precisely who need the law's protection most, and listens to their testimony. Ask any Mexican, any Puerto Rican, any black man, any poor person, ask the wretched how they fare in the halls of justice, and then you will know not whether the country is just, but whether or not it has any love of justice or any concept of it. And that is so heavy hitting, especially in our context. It just, listener, start to pay attention to the prison sentences that rich white people get. I mean, there's a lot of news stories about just different white men embezzling millions of dollars And getting like a couple years for it, or getting off with like time served or house arrest, and then there are other stories of somebody like poor black person who's desperate because he has no money, breaking in and stealing something like hundred bucks, getting like ten or twenty times the sentence,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and
2: just realize like our country, that our legal system is not just; it's uh, it doesn't penalize rich people. Just kind of full stop. Like rich people get a slap on the hand, and James Baldwin here is saying that like if you actually want to know if a country's just or not, it's the poor people, the people who we tend to tune out. They talk with like a less educated accent. They we just kind of dismiss them. You start to hear them in an interview, and you just kind of tune out. Those are the people who you precisely need to be listening to to know whether our system is fair or or broken. And just to refer out, uh, a, a serial, the Serial podcast, I think it's season three, talks about the juvenile justice system in a way that I would push listeners to listen to. It's just such a powerful season of, what is it, Sarah Koenig? Is that who it is? Just interviewing juveniles who are precisely these people that Jimmy says we need to be listening to about the injustices that they and the corruption that they face in America's justice system. It's really eye-opening. Um, so I just push you to that.
0: Another quote that I think is a compliment to what you just shared, Garen, is uh, from The Fire Next Time. Whatever white people do not know about Negroes reveals precisely and inexorably what they do not know about themselves. Mm-hmm. As, as you process what it is to be human and to have
2: emotions and love and care and have like the full complex spectrum of human emotions that ought to then just be imbued through empathy everyone around you including black and brown people and if there's a disconnect and you're not seeing black and brown people as more than the stereotypes that the culture places on them yeah then it's like well there's a breakdown there yeah if you see
1: a white family at a park you know what are your initial thoughts i think it's just a, another exercise it's hard because it's we don't want to do the hard work of thinking and what do we actually really think and be real and honest with ourselves. And what do you think when you see a, that same family but they're black or they're brown? And if it's different, you just need to do some wrestling. There's And odds are, statistically, you probably are going to feel different. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about this before, is you're going to have, everybody has some degree of, Bias of implicit bias in in regards to gender race socioeconomic stat like it's not that you need to feel shame for that, but you just need to be aware of it and then do something with that mm-hmm. so and Garen, you've kind of talked about that before in several episodes, but it's just another reminder too
2: yeah, what you're responsible for is not your biases but what you do with them like yeah. whether you push back on them everyone because of the fall everyone has defects in who we are we have temptations to all all kinds of things that are unloving and un- unhelpful and harmful and some people are tempted to this and some are tempted to that and so much of human history has been people judging each other for what their particular temptations are mm-hmm. but what really matters is what are you doing? you have a particular set of temptations they might be racism, it might be alcoholism, it might, you know, there's a kleptomania, or there's different humans all have different things that they're tempted towards or proclivities. And rather than just judging people who just happen to have different things because of their story than what you have as what they're like drawn to, the better way is to, what you're responsible for is to push back on whatever your temptations are and to love others. For what their temptations are, and to see them through that, despite that. And this goes back to you, Katina, earlier, just saying that we ought to listen to James Baldwin. Even for, for a lot of Christians, they tune him out or don't want to listen to anyone who is homosexual or just any other lifestyle or anything from history. Like a lot of Christians just don't even listen to anyone who's not a Christian from history. And how
0: that's just not how Jesus was. It's so crazy because yesterday I was at the beauty shop and— I met this young man named Avis who is, um, he's gay and practices witchcraft and sorcery and does tarot cards and Orisha, just all the things. He does belly dancing, like he he just has this really extravagant life. And as I'm talking to him, you know, I can just hear the pain of the rejection in his life and grew up in the church. So many times the story starts off, grew up in the church and seeing the hypocrisy and abuses And things there. And what I told him was, like, I I enjoy having a conversation with him. And, you know, I told him that I believe in spiritual gifts and that, you know, my Christian conviction is strong because we were having a very good conversation. And I said, you know, the thing that that really sucks about Christians is that they think that they have to be afraid, like they practice this fear-mongering on God's behalf. When God is not afraid of anything, like if you believe that your God is the God of the universe, if you believe that He is the one and true, true and, you know, only living God, then why does someone's story intimidate you when you believe, like, if, and that's what I said to him, if I believe that God here is who He says He is, and I told the young man, I believe everything about God that He says He is. And even the things that I don't understand, I still believe that God's word is true. But that doesn't, and that gives me, that doesn't give me power and authority over someone else, but it gives me freedom to exist knowing that I don't have to be afraid of anybody else's God. And I think about Elijah when he, and just made me think about Elijah, how he was just so confident in who God was and when he, you know, confronted the priest of Baal. Now, this conversation with this young man was just, you know, a loving, mutual, you know, just enjoying conversation with him. And I didn't feel the need to fight him or resist him or condemn him. But when you're confident about who your God is, why does it incite, like, why is it playing out in projecting fear and hatred? Being a child of God, like when we think about parents and children, my kids being so confident in who I am, that allows them to walk in a liberty and a freedom that they don't have to be threatened by anybody else. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing, like who James Bond, like his life, his lifestyle, that's not a threat to me. I can just look at him as a, a person that God created and value what God has done in and through him. And I do believe when you look at the scriptures, you see that time and time again where people were engaging and interacting and living amongst each other, and that the people of God was, were, were called to, to be the people of God. Mm-hmm. You know, God might say might say, don't you know do this, these people do or don't do this like that th- those people do. But he never said like exclude them. He always left room for immigrants, He left room for foreigners, He left room to love sojourners. He sent Jonah out to Nineveh, out of his loving kindness. Like if we're really gonna be ambassadors of God, we gotta stop being afraid. Because then if we're afraid, if we gotta practice fear mongering, then God isn't who who we make him out to be. Either God is a liar or we are. Mm-hmm. And so I just had to insert that.
2: Yeah. And maybe two things to kind of piggyback on that is one, again, just Jesus in his example he relentlessly moved towards the unreligious people. And even there's stories where people directly said if Jesus knew who this woman was, they wouldn't he wouldn't associate with her and almost questioned Jesus' knowledge and divinity because he was allowing a prostitute come and you know wash his feet. And like he pushed back on that. And he all throughout his ministry, he's moving towards the people who the religious establishment rejected. Right. And like what a model that makes. But then also like Paul, and there's a really interesting exchange in 1 Corinthians where he basically says, these moral standards that I've previously told you about don't associate with people who are drunkards, gluttons, slanderers, adulterers, all these things. All he says, things. he says when I said that, just to clarify, I wasn't at all talking about the people of this world who are right. those things. Otherwise you would have to stop associating with people of this world. I meant don't, as, don't associate with somebody who is a... a Christian and has like taken Christ as their Lord and then continues in those things that that Jesus said not to do. So basically he's laying out this framework of, no, associate freely with people in this world. Don't expect non-Christians to be Christians. right? Don't expect, expect them to have Christian morality because Jesus, he only offered love and acceptance and kindness to the people of this world. And then for people who followed him, yes, he said, Come, follow me. There's a particular way, and, and and like you said, we don't always understand that. But I believe, as a Christian, that God's way is wise and is what's best. But I'm not gonna like expect non-believers to be believers. I'm gonna expect Christians to grow towards walking in holiness, as you know the Bible lays out what that looks like. But if you're a Christian, being And also like with the homosexuality issues particularly, we have to also just talk about how Christianity has just been so unloving and abusive. Evil. -hmm. Evil towards the, the gay community in the past. So even aside from, to pause the issue of what does the Bible say about homosexuality, that is separate from that is the fact that Christianity has been like actually abusive towards the gay
0: community. Yeah. The Christian community has persecuted the gay community. We want to look at persecution only as Christians being persecuted. But the Christian community has persecuted various people groups throughout history, world history, American history.
1: White Christians want to view oppression against Christianity.
0: There you go. Yeah. Yeah. White Christians want to uh, want to feel so oppressed and be so yeah. want to be persecuted so bad. But then while practicing persecution and oppression towards black people, you know, Latinx people, women... The, the homosexual community Like it's crazy
2: Yeah And so I think Christians need to First of all Just dive into repentance Of our failures And just apologize To the gay community Say We should all along Have been Endorsing and supporting Organizations That were taking Children who were Put out of their homes Because they came out Of the closet And then were rejected By their families And we should have been Housing them And loving them And adopting them Right We should have all along Been Come like now. Helping the, the, the Trans community how they many trans people are just targeted for like murdered and killed yeah, yeah. and beat up and abused. And we should all along have been down there in the gutters, picking you up like the good Samaritan. We have just failed in so many ways. And I think Christians, it's almost a fear that my actions would be construed as endorsing something that the Bible, I think in my convictions, calls sin causes Christians to just have this paralysis where they don't enact what Jesus modeled, which is move towards the people who the religious community calls sinners. Like Jesus didn't condone adultery when he rescued the woman who was caught in adultery and said, I don't condemn you. and, And chased away essentially the religious people who were ready to stone her. He like moved towards people who were rejected by the religious community and we're outside of god's law. Yeah. He moved towards them in compassion and love. He saw their humanity. He embraced them. And he also I think just the bible as a whole gives Christians not just permission but encouragement to to see the humanity and the god-given image-bearing benefit of non-believers that yeah. we god has given non-believers all kinds of wisdom that Christians need and can benefit from and it's just pride that someone yeah. would tune out the 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 contribution of someone like James Baldwin or just anyone else that Christians would be tempted to tune out and and also I think it's fear fear that if if you're a Christian and you I don't know if I trust myself to have the the moral filters or the discernment to know what's good and bad then I almost just want to listen to only people who sold in the family Christian bookstore because I'm afraid I won't be able to like discern falsehood when I see it but then that's just kind of like Well, then read your Bible and then read and love the other authors that God has gifted.
0: Well, and it's so interesting because like Christians are, well, evangelicalism is so afraid about what will rub off. But then to the extremes that American evangelicalism went to keep its clutches in power, the things that they turned a blind eye to. The the sin and the heinous evil and like from from adultery, sexual immorality, misogyny, sexual abuse, all the things the past four years that they have been willing, you know, nude, nude, nakedness, mm. lasciviousness, fornication, so many things that they would condemn the world for that they were willing to turn a blind eye and reframe, reframe. Oh no, it wasn't. It wasn't. You know. Nudity, it was art You know, it's like It just lets you know that it's a lie It's all a lie It's, it's literally all a lie And it's so funny Because like in talking to this young man Yesterday, my son was with me And I didn't, I, I didn't walk away from the beauty shop You know, feeling like my Christianity was compromised Or that somehow I was going to start Worshipping orishas and practicing witchcraft I felt I, like I went home and slept, slept good because I had an opportunity to show Christ's love to someone who had been rejected so much of his life. And the thing about it is that American, white American Christianity has produced more evil in the world than we're willing to acknowledge, like, than, than they're willing to acknowledge. Because just think about if people like Malcolm X, if people like James Baldwin, if they would have received the love of the church— and the body of the body of Christ, if there was no, if there was not racism that was being instituted and implemented by you know white Christianity. Like just think about how many people wouldn't be, wouldn't embrace what they've embraced if they would have felt loved and affirmed by the Christian community like they should have. Mm-hmm. But for many of them, like Malcolm X and like James Baldwin, they are not able to point to one, you know, example. Of just someone being loving and kind, you know, I mean, James Baldwin had the one white teacher, unlike Malcolm. He had teachers who encouraged him that were white, but that, you know, James Baldwin experienced brutality. He experienced racism. Just think if that wasn't their, their story, mm-hmm. how much different. We, we underestimate the power of the love. We underestimate the power of being the body of Christ and being that freedom and how it really does shape the culture. And I feel like we created a culture that hates Christianity. Christians have created a culture that hates Mm -hmm. God because of us. Yeah. And that, you know, just to kind of wrap it up, I think that James Baldwin, just as a creative myself, and him being a creative and using his words to speak to power— I think it's great to just kind of close the episode out with two of his quotes. He said, Writers are extremely important people in a country, whether or not the country knows it. And then he also said, A society must assume that it is stable, but the artist must know, and he must let us know, that there is nothing stable under heaven.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode. If you are looking for more information on what we discuss, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. You can also follow us on social media. We are on Twitter and Instagram. Just go ahead and search Black History for White People. If you'd like to play a supportive role in the podcast, for $5 a month, you can vote for future topics, listen to unedited interviews, submit questions, and more. Check us out at patreon.com/backslash Black History for White People. Next episode, we will be discussing the Underground Railroad. We'll leave you with this quote from James Baldwin himself. I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hates so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they'll be forced to deal with pain.